Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good morning, Northern Maine. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the conscience of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio. Just Google it, search for the Northern Maine Landman. Hearing this today on Christmas Eve, excuse me, <laughs> on uh, New Year's Eve 2016, where the lakes are making ice. We had some snow, uh, and on Friday, uh, the snow was pretty well wound up by 9 o'clock in the morning. It's, uh, I, saw, I see patches of blue sky. Saturday, we've got a chance of snow after 3 p.m., New Year's Eve, mostly sunny, high near 19, wind chill values as low as zero, west wind is 5 to 10 miles an hour, chance of precipitation is 40%. Saturday night, snow likely mainly before 4 a.m., cloudy, low around 14, southeast wind 6 to 8 miles an hour, chance of precipitation 70%, new snow accumulation of 2 to 4 inches. And then New Year's Day, a chance of snow showers before 9 a.m., partly sunny, high near 33, southwest wind around 10 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, 30%. So if you get everything cleared out, uh, New Year's Day is going to be a nice day to get out and go ice fishing or whatever you're going to do. Go snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, take pictures. We had a huge uh, variety of precipitation and weather during this storm that came up through on, on Friday night. Uh, there are places in Aristotle County that got 26 inches. There are places on the coast that got 2 inches. And it turned to ice. And the old Central Maine Power, I don't know what they're calling it this week, uh, has got 40,000 customers without power on Friday morning. Amira, which used to be Bangor Hydro, uh, has got 
20,000 customers, roughly, round numbers, without power on Friday morning. Some of those take a while to come back because uh, when you get that much ice down on the coast, some of these poles can go down like a row of dominoes when they when one of them snaps. That happened back in the ice storm of 98. Never forget that one. Some people were without power for three weeks. And I'm going to mention fuel prices because they're changing again. We had an uptick. And then the uh, the futures on oil went down, and we've got huge volumes of oil in storage. The tank farms are pretty full, so when the tank farms get full due to lack of demand, once again, the providers, the well driller people, uh, say, "Well, we'll sell it to you for this much," and the price goes down. And People buy more fuel, and even on, at the home level. Uh, I see an awful lot of homes. I'm in the real estate business, as most of you know. I'm a broker, and I go into a lot of homes in Maine that have two oil tanks. An oil tank will hold 275 gallons. For all intents and purposes, uh, most people have a maximum of 250 gallons because the whistle goes off there. And uh, when an oil truck pulls up to your house and sticks the nozzle in the pipe, turns it on, uh, you hear a whistle. Well, that whistle is air coming out of the tank through when oil goes in, the air has to come out. So that air comes out and goes through a whistle, and it whistles as the tank is filling up. And when the tank gets up to the vent pipe, which is below the top of the tank, the whistle stops, and the driver will shut the fuel off. And depending on his route and how much he's got left and how many more stops he's got, he may put another 10 or 20 gallons into your tank, which, uh, you know, he's, still, he's not going to overflow it. So that's what he does. And uh, some of them, though, they click it. They're standing there, and when, when the whistle uh, stops, they immediately stop filling it. That's a good idea in the summertime because the fuel uh, doesn't expand much. In the wintertime, when he stops filling a tank, the fuel is cold coming out of the truck, and it goes in, and then your house heats the fuel up to ambient temperature, which in your cellar is probably 60 degrees. And that fuel expands. So, just beat on the gas, and you can fill up your tank. If you get bored while you're filling your vehicle at self-service gas station, you'll notice that on on the on the uh, fuel pump, it says fuel corrected for temperature, which is 68 degrees. So if it's 20 degrees, or maybe even 20 below, the fuel in the ground in the tank is colder than it is in the middle of the summer. Now, it's not 20 below, but but they do adjust it for temperature, and if you're getting fuel that is more dense, then you have, uh, you're have getting more bang for the buck because when it goes through your fuel injector or when it goes into your, through your carburetor or whatever, it's going to be 
uh, up to ambient temperature from the engine temperature. So you're getting more fuel, uh, and they correct for that. Because in the great grand scheme of things, it's a lot of, uh, you know, that's real money. You know, a few cents on a transaction, that's how Amazon gets rich. Amazon doesn't have much inventory. They simply are a shipping service. And they'll call a, a company like uh, Orvis in Vermont and say, hey, ship this product to Joe Dokes in Arista County. Okay, they do. And Amazon gets a fraction of that transaction cost. And, of course, the shipping company does. That means that department stores have fewer customers walking through the door. I go to Bangor several times a month. I don't go to Bangor any more than I have to. But uh, when I go down, I often stop at Staples. It's, it, that's the cheapest ink for the, my printer. I go in there and I'll buy some pads of paper. They've got the cheapest pads of paper. I use a lot of pads of paper. I make notes and stuff. And it reminds me to return calls for people. So I go down there, and I always note the number of vehicles. I don't count them, but I look at how busy the parking lot is. Now, a lot of the people parking in the parking lot are employees in the mall. So if you discount the total number of employees, which I don't know what the number is, but it's a bunch, you know, probably 100 people in there. If you discount those people and the salespeople that are visiting the stores, then now you're down to the actual customers. But the people that park there go in and they they walk the aisles. Now, the store owners are happy to have the people in there for two reasons. They're witnesses in case in the case of a uh, of a uh, a theft or some violence or whatever, you know. Two customers get into a fight over the last the last item on Christmas Eve. Saw that all over the country in malls, people fighting over large screen TVs who were marked down to very, very low prices. Big screen TVs came out there with twenty five hundred dollars. Now they're two hundred and fifty dollars. Because they got good at making them and they've achieved market saturation. You go into a pawn shop you want to buy a TV to have in the garage or something, uh, 15 bucks for a TV, and it works. Well, the used TV market is, is dead. They're going to find out this morning that uh, they're going to close the Kmart in Bangor. No loss there, in my opinion. There's a whole bunch of people that work in there, mostly minimum wage part-timers, and they're putting food on the table. They used to have blue light specials. You know, they say, blue light right here. I'm going to mark this down for the next 20 minutes. And they'll go over there and they'll check and buy some towels or something. But Kmart is hurting badly, more so than other uh, big box retailers. Big boxes can be freestanding. Big boxes can be 
part of a mall, what they used to call anchor stores. People go there because of the big box, and they might wander into some other establishment and buy a couple of bagels or something. So Kmart came out with Rosie O'Donnell as their spokesman. Rosie O'Donnell is a far-left radical socialist viciously opposed to the private ownership of firearms and various other rights that are near and dear to our hearts under the Constitution. And when that happened, millions of American families, coast to coast, and I'm never going in that place again. I'm one of them. I have not gone into a Kmart since Rosie O'Donnell became their spokesman. But when it, you know, when you add that up, Millions of families, you know, families generally go to the same department store to get meet their basic needs. And and I, uh, you know, I go into Walmart and I see if they got any 22 ammunition. Go from the front of the store to the back of the store. Somebody picked up, maybe Jack. So we. Uh, you know, you have, you develop habits. You go into certain stores, and and you know, Walmart is a is a good American enterprise store, like Sears used to be, and Walmart has got a wide variety of stuff, and they they stock what sells. Sears has old time anchor departments. I mean, if you're looking for an oddball tool like a six point nine sixteenths socket deep socket, 3H drive, you can go in there and pick one off the shelf. That's a nice convenience. And if you need it, because you simply can't find the one that you own, and you know, you go in there and buy it off the shelf. And it's it's that's an expensive way to buy tools, one socket at a time, but it's a convenience that I value. So I go into Sears once in a while and buy buy a tool. And I buy some, of course, you buy a Sears sandpaper, a belt sander, for example, and it's the only place you're going to find sandpaper for it. <laughs> I don't use belt sander too much. I used, used to use it a lot when I was building canoes because you put all those ribs on the canoe, and then you're going to have to sand it so it's nice and smooth and round. Not smooth like finished sanded, but smooth contoured. And uh, it's a... You know, there's tricks to the trade in every trade, but you know, I bought a couple of Sears belt sanders, and I've still got a few belts left, and I don't do much belt sanding anymore. But I'm hoping that Sears hangs in there for that reason. But I'm starting to see Sears tools in other other stores, uh, like True Value Hardware stocks Sears Craftsman tools. They may not have the full line, but they'll have the, the basic essentials. And because there are a lot of stores closing down, I'm seeing Sears Craftsman tools in in discount stores. So when the store clears out, they don't put all the work into replacing the tools. In other words, bring haul all the tools back in and send them out to other Sears stores. They don't need to itemize every single barcode they bring in. When they close a store, they either go in there with bins, just put everything in bins and ship it to a store that's successful. 
they could save a heck of a lot of time and money. You look at YouTube, and there are videos of ghost malls, big, beautiful malls. And you talk to the watchman, and they'll let you in there with your video camera, and you can wander around, take pictures, and, and leave. That's how this happens. Or well, the watchman himself may be doing the video. They keep people in there just to just to patrol the stores. They may be a private security service, and the guy's done put this together with his with his iPhone. But we have a lot of ghost malls in our country for two reasons, basically. One is Amazon and the various other uh, buying services. And two, simply lack of demand. Once again, we've got 95 million Americans not working. And they're not spending much. They're going to yard sales, garage sales. They're bartering. They're trading their services for for items that they need. Got people that will shovel snow for for some groceries or some for some money or something, you know. And they're all making money somehow. They're surviving. We don't, you know. Once in a while, you read about an incident where some elderly person has been found dead in their home. And they've been, they weren't any trash going in and out in the snow for a long time. And you wonder, gee, you know, did he get on a bus and go down to spend the winter with his kids down south? Or did something happen in there? And somebody will call and they say, do a welfare check on this person. And the person passed away some time ago. There was a lady down in southern Maine Nobody noticed. Nobody thought about. Neighbors were mowing her lawn as a, as a courtesy and to keep the neighborhood looking good. She'd been dead for two years. Finally went in, and when the tax bills stopped <laughs> coming in, they went in and do a check on the house and look at it for foreclosure. And it was Babel, or whatever her name was. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention to your neighbors. Make sure they're okay. Just you know, just a courtesy call will be the high point of their day. In many cases, I know people like that. I know a lady that did not see a human face for 14 weeks one winter, but she was in there as a matter of choice. She liked the solitude, and now she has decided that she was going to live in town. So she bought a home in town, and she lives in town. And if she wants some solitude, she can go back out to camp, which is actually a year-round home. I mean, it's insulated. It's it's wired like a house. It's got drilled well and septic. It's small, very beautiful place. She lived out there six miles from the pavement by herself for the winter. Did not see a human face for 14 weeks. She had to face me. Intimidating thought, I guess. So, the Christmas was celebrated in Aleppo, in Syria. Now, last week I mentioned that Aleppo was the oldest Christian city in the world, and that the disciples, after Christ was crucified, had to get out of town. You know, it wasn't safe for them to be in Jerusalem. I mean, a lot of people knew who they were. And, 
And, of course, there were people that would point him out to the Romans and say, hey, he, that's it, he's one of those people. And they'd grab him. And, and they'd probably get executed, maybe get crucified also. You know, they just had to leave if they were going to do their mission, which was spreading the gospel. So they uh, they left town. And no need to cover that particular thing again. But Aleppo was and still is, in some respects, the world's oldest Christian city. And Run, which is a a, uh, a mission of Christians who are helping to get the Christians out of Aleppo. They'll send in a bunch of vehicles, and not, not I say a bunch, on uh a number of vehicles, but not in one convoy. And they'll go into a place where there are Christians and take those Christians out that want to leave. There are some people, some Christians, that are hoping to hold out in Aleppo. But this group went in and fed 4,000 Christians in Aleppo last week on Christmas Eve. Men, women, and children. 4,000. And, of course, like other Christians, they, they took those meals and they split them, half for me, half for you. And there were a lot, a lot more than 4,000 people were fed from that. They're hungry. They don't have running water. They collect water from tarps. At this time of year, there is precipitation. Sometimes it's snow. But they collect the precipitation into containers, and, and that's it for drinking water. They don't want to spill a drop. They'll stick a straw in there. They've got modern conveniences. They've got plastic straws and they've got plastic cups and things like that. You know, they're aware of what's going on in the world. They have solar-charged batteries. It doesn't take much to charge a couple of AA batteries and you've got a radio to listen to. And they, there are stations beaming radio signals into Aleppo. Aleppo is not very far from the Turkish border, but the the Christians wouldn't be any better off going to Turkey than they would going to Jordan. Jordan is a Muslim country, but in Aleppo, we've basically got Christians, we've got Sunnis, we've got Shia, and then we've got ISIS. They're actually there. Now, these ISIS people are just flat-out bad people. They're terrorists. They run around beheading people and throwing them off the tall rooftops and, and burning them alive and taking videos of it and beheading people. They're bad folks. You know, They ought to be wiped off the face of the earth. It needs to be done. And these folks aren't going to give up being terrorists. They might get captured, they might get sent to Gitmo, and they might get turned loose from Gitmo after being trained by each other, benefiting from their own experience and the experience of others in the in the terrorist movement. And they get shipped out of there and off they go. And it's the first opportunity they're going to go back into the battlefield and try to kill Christians and Jews and 
other people who just flat out don't like. That's the way the world is today. They had a bunch of people from western China, right over on the Afghanistan border, who were captured and sent to Gitmo. And they're called Ouija's. Now, it's not like a Ouija board. It's just, you know, there are names that mean different things in different languages, and it's the same, it sounds the same. These Ouija's, the four Ouija's that were captured and sent to Gitmo, are in Bermuda. Bermuda looked them up on on YouTube or, or whatever, and they... Uh, they found out that these were an ethnic group in western China who are of Afghan-type extraction, but the the border landed them in China. The Chinese never bothered them much. They just did their thing out there, and the road that goes from China actually goes from the Pacific Ocean up the rivers of China, over the mountains, behind north of Tibet, all the way to the western end of China, which is the border of Afghanistan. I don't have to look this stuff up. I'm just kind of a map and geography nut. And one of my one of my uh, buyers gave me a wonderful atlas. It's a it's a collection of maps from all over the world, back from the ancients right up to the present day. It discusses the old ancient cartographers. Cartographer, excuse me, is a is a map maker, and it's a wonderful book, and I really like it. It was given to me by some people who are friends of mine. So, off my phone. My phone is dinging me. Somebody sent me a text message, which I'll read later. Now it won't ding me anymore. Okay. So, these people who identify with the Afghans, they're called Ouija's, were sent to Bermuda. And they were, you know, they weren't real hardcore terrorists. They just got caught up in the sweep. They all look alike, they talk alike, and they know each other, and they ended up in Gitmo. And they were released from Gitmo, and they said, well, we're going to send them. Nobody wanted them because they had the stigma of having been in Gitmo and being real bad guys. Well, these four guys uh, would like to go home, (laughs) but they can't get transportation from from, uh, Bermuda to the western tip of China. The Afghans don't want them because they're not terrorists. The Chinese don't want them because these people are a nuisance to the Chinese government. And back during Chairman Mao's uh, leadership, if you want to call it leadership in China, uh, they took over Tibet. They just took over this whole nation, which which their culture goes back, you know, into what we call... B.C., before Christ, thousands of years ago, they they were building these great big uh, temples 
and holes in Tibet. And they've had some earthquakes there lately that tore some of these great big old 1,000-year-old, 2,000-year-old structures down. But the Tibetans were a peaceful peaceful people. They never went and invaded anybody. They just wanted to live their own lifestyle and worship Buddha and try to be good people. Which, you know, there are, you ever hear of a Buddhist terrorist? Buddhists aren't terrorists. Baptists aren't terrorists. You know, most Christians aren't terrorists. You know, they want to live their life and be kind to people and just get along in the world. In Vietnam, they had a bunch of Buddhist temples, and they had one right out in the middle of the Mekong Delta. And these Buddhists were what they call Bao Dai. The Bao Dai is a religion and a society that is a mixture of Roman Catholicism and Buddhism, which means they seem to be a, in a, a uh, peculiar mix, but it developed over time. And when France came to Vietnam and took over the place, you know, they were there for a couple of hundred years, probably 300 years before the 20th century when the Japanese went in and chased them out of out of Vietnam. The, J- the Japanese uh, were defeated and left Vietnam. The, uh, the French figures, well, we're going to come back and take over again. An old uh, the leader of Vietnam who had just returned from Moscow, for, he'd gone to Moscow for training, he he requested uh, assistance and aid from, from the United States, and we turned him down. So he went to Moscow and got assistance and established communism in Vietnam. And uh, so they didn't bother the Bao Dai, though, down in the middle of the Mekong Delta. The Bao Dai have lots of old traditions that go back thousands of years. And the Catholics came in, and they said, well, okay, you know, we'll tolerate your priests, but uh, don't mess with us. <laughs> and the French didn't see the Baodai region in the Mekong Delta as being worthy of of uh, defeat, because they... <coughs> Excuse me. Don't even know when that's going to happen. We, uh, the Baodai would defend themselves vigorously. They would n- then not leave and go hunt down their enemies and declare perpetual war against them like terrorists do. They just, just you don't mess with us, we won't mess with you. So that became an efficient way for the French to to administer that part of Vietnam. And the Baodai learned French, and some of their kids went to French schools. Some of their kids adopted Roman Catholic traditions along with the Baodai Buddhist traditions. So that's that same system works in most colonial nations. The British went to India, and they. Uh, they began to trade with 
people from India, and they established relations with them, and they gradually took over the administration of the country because tribal societies are not big on administration. They just they have leaders, and there are certain things they have to do. They have to build roads and paths and trails and get water to the population and you know things like these just need to be done, like we need to plow the snow. Does it make any difference what parties can in control in your town or Augusta? You still have to plow the snow. I went to a, a housewarming in Springfield. A couple lost their home seven months ago, burned flat. And it started with an outdoor brush fire and the house caught on fire and, and they lost their entire home, everything. Even the Kubota burned up. It was parked close to the house, and the tires burnt up, and the Kubota was destroyed. And uh, they just lost everything. But fortunately, they had homeowner's insurance, and they hired a guy to come in, clear up the the uh, the mess from the fire, and build a new home. And they built it back another 30, 40 feet because... The old foundation was cracked from the heat, so they just pushed it in the hole and brought in some gravel, filled that up. But they got a beautiful new home, and I went to their housewarming uh, two weeks ago. And uh, in my line of work and in my personal uh, political activity, you meet a lot of people, and you meet people that you don't agree with. And I walked in there and... and, uh, and there was Gordon Mott, big-time environmentalist, and Mitch Lansky, big-time environmentalist. They were at this housewarming. And the lady is a teacher. And uh, she meets a lot of people. She meets parents, all kinds of people. And uh, she's got her, her own, you know, strong beliefs, and so do I and other people, but as I told, I was standing there between Mitch Lansky and Gordon Mott, and I asked Gordon, I said, hey, have you, did you go down to to uh, Brewer yesterday? And they had a meeting regarding expedited wind power in the town of Carroll. And the town of Carroll, the majority of the people in town, want to have some windmills in town because the windmill people pay a lot of tax money into a town. And population of Carroll is about 145. And they, you know, they've got probably 60 households in the town, and that's it. they got a bunch of camps. But basically, it's, it's a really small town, and they have a hard time meeting their obligations to the state. And they tuition their kids to nearby school districts, but but Carroll would like to have windmills. And some towns would really like to have windmills, but they don't have any hilltops. Carroll has a hilltop called Bagley Mountain. No, excuse me. Not Bagley Mountain. Anyway, Carroll, I'll think of it in a minute. They have a, they have a mountain there in Carroll, which is a deal site for windmills, just like the ones out at Stetson in Washington County. They got one 
in Wynn, Lee, Lincoln, and Burlington, one line of bridges called the Rollins Project, Rollins North, Rollins South. But they've got uh, they've got a really good site in Carroll, and the townspeople would like it, and it, the environmental industry doesn't want them to do that. And what you have to understand, it isn't just building a road up the mountain. These people oppose roads. They don't want any new town roads. They don't want any new camp roads. They don't want any new logging roads. They just don't want any new roads. And there is a group called the Road Rippers. These people want to rip out existing roads. As a volunteer fireman, I don't like that idea. There's a law when they pass the new the new uh, Maine Forest Practices Act a number of years ago. I argued against it, but it passed. And if if a logging company puts in a new logging road, such as along Route 169 from Springfield to Danforth, that's about 20, 25 miles out across there. One road with various other roads going off it. But if you put in a new logging road in there, three-quarters of a mile, and have a landing. You've got various skidder trails coming in. <clears throat> Maybe you've got two or three landings in there, each of which would be a nice spot for a hunting camp, by the way. They go in and put this road in. When they complete the harvest, they have to make the road impassable. That means dig up the culvert out there at the edge of the road, take the culvert away, use it someplace else, and put boulders across that driveway. I mean, I'm not talking about basketball-sized boulders. I'm talking about boulders you not, cannot move with a pickup truck. You can't just get two guys and roll a boulder out of the way. I mean, that is a big boulder. It's got to be made impassable. When I argued against this bill, I said, you know, I said most of the firemen in my fire department have my hair color. At that time, I still had a few black hairs in my head. Right now, my hair is white. And I said, you know, when we pull up to the scene of a woods fire caused by lightning or something, I don't want to have to fill an Indian tank, run three-quarters of a mile into the woods, squirt the fire, run back out to fill the tank. I want to drive the mini-pumper in there and drown that sucker. Run a booster hose out there a couple of hundred feet and hose it down. Put the fire out. Go home for supper. You're not gonna. You're not gonna win out over that fire with a crew of old guys running in and out with Indian pumps. And at that session, bear in mind that half of the people in the state of Maine live within 50 miles of Congress Street in Portland, and half of that radius is water. So we've got a really high population density down there, which means that we've got a really high number of representatives. And it just so happened that when I testified at that hearing, there wasn't one legislator in the hearing room that lived north of Augusta. And Augusta is the edge of Augusta, one the little south corner of Augusta. If you snap a string from Congress Street in Portland, touches Augusta. 
a part of Augusta is in that semicircle of densely populated area. So, it passed. And those roads are made impassable. And the landowner might want to sell two or three camp lots in there, two or three acres apiece, and let the people go in there and camp and uh, have a barbecue. Some people go to camp for Christmas because camps tug at the heartstrings. Camps are a main tradition, and they go back hundreds of years. I have occasion to run across a camp that's caved in, an old fallen-down camp. The children were not interested, but the parents and great-grandparents that built that camp, you know, maybe they only went there for two weeks in November, but most camps have families go out during the summertime and they'll recreate. Now with ATVs, they can ride from the camp all the way to the ocean. And people are astounded at that. I say, you can get on your ATV in Lincoln and ride to the ocean. Stop in at at uh, Helen's Restaurant, have the best fried clams in the whole wide world, blueberry pie a la mode for dessert, and ride back to Lincoln on an ATV legally. There is no other nation where you can do that. And I've got a picture of two side-by-side ATVs parked in the Walmart parking lot in a regular, just like the cars would park, and they're in there shopping. They're going to throw their bundles in the back of the side-by-side ATV and ride home or back out to camp or wherever they came from. And it's just, that's freedom. That's freedom. You can do stuff that you'd like to do. And there's people in this world that don't want you to do what you like to do, whether it's possess firearms, crossbows, dirt bikes, snowmobiles, ATVs, ultralight airplanes. They don't want you to do that. They just want to control everything and live in this little imaginary society where you sit at home and you do approved things and you live in government-approved condominiums and federally uh, designated urban service zones and live in apartments and walk to shop. And, I mean, lots of people walk to shop in New York City because you can't afford to park a car there. I met a guy on Christmas Eve who had driven from New York to Maine to pick up some stuff. I sold his house uh, in May of last year. And he had a really nice post and beam home. And uh, his wife didn't like it here. And she, uh, His wife is from China. And she speaks four, four different languages in Chinese. Mandarin uh, and three other dialects from China. And they are actually different languages. It's not just like the difference between Maine and Louisiana. <laughs> a Mainer from Rooster County may have difficulty holding a conversation with a fisherman from Louisiana. (laughs) English language does vary, but still, this lady thought she was going to go to work at Lee Academy, where we have 85 Chinese uh, students, approximately. It varies year to year. $33,000 a head to go to Lee Academy for one year. 
and some families have two children going there. The uh, Chinese have abandoned their one-child policy. They still have the highest abortion rate in the entire world, but they, uh, you know, if you think about this, these these kids, their their words that have fallen into disuse and are obsolete in China. Some of those words are aunt, uncle, niece, nephew, cousin. There aren't any. They grow up with small families, very small families, two parents and one child. And if you look at that system, you know, it exists in Europe, not through not through mandatory uh, circumstances. It's just simply they can't afford kids. And the ethnic population that lived so long, thousands of years in Europe, is disappearing. And Angela Merkel think it'd be a good idea to bring in a million young Muslim men from uh, the Middle East between the ages of 18 and 35. Angela Merkel thought this was a good idea. You know, common sense should tell you that this is not a good idea. They can't buy anything. They don't speak German. There are not a lot of German industries that require very cheap labor assembling things or packaging things by hand. Most packaging in this country is done by machines now. And the same in Europe. And because they don't have any young people to employ, Mercedes-Benz is building factories in the U.S. in Georgia, Alabama, and they've got you know good people that know stuff. They can work in highly complex environments. They're most of, an awful lot of building automobiles today is done by robotics, but somebody ultimately has to lubricate the robot and service the robot, and we really need to get people coming out of our community colleges. And starting on uh, January 20th, we've got an inauguration. Barack Hussein Obama is going to go back to what he did before he became president. He's going to be a community organizer with a good pension. He's not leaving Washington, D.C. He's going to stay right there and organize the far left to pursue their goals. And his his followers in the press are going to support that. And every time he makes a declaration, they're going to say, oh, what a wonderful idea. We ought to do this. You know, and anybody that opposes this is a racist, homophobic, bad person. And it's, this is what we've had for the last eight years. And the press isn't going to change. The press is going to return to their dark side of of just attacking conservatives because you know we want people to have have uh, 
human rights. We want to have responsible spending by individuals and by government. And on November 9th, they've got videos on on computers that you can look at. It shows people just agonizing over the fact that Republican was elected president. I mean, Hillary was supposed to be the new president. That's what the press has been telling them for a year now. It's just, you know, Hillary is going to be our new president. Well, no. The fly people from flyover country said, no, we're not doing this for another eight years because she said she wanted to continue the Obama administration for eight more years. That's what she said. Look at it. Call it up. Look at it on on your computer screen. And the computer thing is uh, is a big lever for freedom. And they try to censor conservatives, you know. And you say, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. They say, oh, I call on your names, which is the last refuge of of a progressive is if he doesn't have any good ideas is to simply to start calling your names. So that's what we're facing. But we've got opportunity coming back. There is a phone company, Sprint, is going to bring 5,000 jobs back into our country and they're going to modify the their cell service. You know, the price of cellular phones and the service for cellular phones is going to come down. We've got what they call market saturation. There are not many people running around in our country today that do not have a cell phone. And we're going to have competition. Competition is a good thing. You can provide a, a good service for a better price. You'll probably go there. The two big TV uh Cable TV suppliers for satellites are Dish and Verizon. And but we're going to, you know, there's a lot of people that bounce back and forth between the two for two years. Sign like a two-year contract. Okay, so the guy goes with Dish. He bounces, and that, after two years, the special good deal is over for new subscribers, so he drops Dish, and he puts up a DirecTV. I said Verizon, I meant DirecTV. So you put up a DirecTV antenna. It belongs to DirecTV. It's on your house. When they sell the house, they don't come out and take the antenna dish down. They abandon it. So you see an awful lot of houses with two antennas, sometimes three antennas, because sometimes they have direct TV and they have dish TV, and they've got HughesNet. Now, HughesNet is is a satellite Internet service, because if you're beyond a certain distance from the switch in your little country town in Maine, you can't get Internet service. Or it's so slow, it's like dial-up used to be really slow you could get you could get 
email over it, okay? And you could send email, and eventually it would go. But if you wanted to download a photograph, you could hit download, and then you go out in the kitchen, make a cup of coffee, come back, and it probably isn't finished downloading that one picture. I mean, forget streaming video. That's one picture. And now we've got something new coming. And I just found out about it. We're going to have a new kind of Internet. And it's going to work with with satellites, lots of satellites. And the company that's developed this has proven that it works. But they don't have enough satellites to to make it work. So they're going to put a whole bunch of satellites up and you're going to be able to get on the Internet at your campsite. So if you go over to Moosehead Lake, you're going to go into Lily Bay Campground and camp for a week. Go out there and ride around, paddle around Moosehead Lake. Be careful doing that because you get some pretty big storms, big waves on Moosehead. But there are people that will paddle around in canoes and kayaks and people that bring in big boats and go trolling for salmon and lake trout and brook trout on Moosehead. And they want to get on the Internet. So they got to drive up to a hilltop and, and take, out, take out their cell phone and get on the Internet on their cell phone or their iPad. I got all that stuff. And I use it all. I don't work for it. It works for me. So, they're going to have a new system of low-orbiting satellites. And it's like when you're going with your satellite, with your cell phone, you you can go from one cell tower to another cell tower, going down the interstate, for example, and you don't even realize you're jumping from tower to tower. Your cell phone is always looking for the best signal. Well, now, instead of having cell towers, we're going to have low-orbiting satellites. That will mean just at the altitude you're watching the space station go over. The space station is, the International Space Station is visible, and you can get on the Internet, and it'll tell you what night it's going to be visible and what time and where it's going to rise and how far it's going to be above the horizon and when it's going to set. It doesn't really set. What happens in the evening is that is that it uh, it passes into the Earth's shadow, and all of a sudden the sun isn't shining on it. It uh, it's kind of fun to watch it go over. And you tell somebody that it's going to go over, and they say, what do you mean it's going to go over? Yeah, the star is going to rise in the west and pass overhead and set in the east. And they look at it, holy mackerel, and it's just astounding to some people. One man's common knowledge is, is a profound mystery to another man. Makes the world go around. You have to respect people for what they know. I've got, uh, you know, there's things that I simply don't know how to do. I go to somebody that does know how. And you respect their their knowledge. Valuable. And many people undervalue the knowledge they have. It would boost our economy if people would just let people, other people know that, hey, I can do this. You know, I can change your well pump for you when the well pump dies. Best time to do that is in the wintertime because you're pulling all that hole, all that pipe out of the ground, 
laying it on snow instead of laying it on the on the grass where the puppy has been, so to speak. You know, put it back down the hole, test your water, and it's good. You don't have to bleach it. It's been a pretty wide-ranging show here. People, uh, you know, the, the left is just frantic about the fact that Donald Trump is using little text messages, Twitter, to make uh, announcements. He's, well, I've picked the guy I want to be Secretary of the Interior, and he'll send it out as a tweet. The press wants the president to come out in their little theater in Washington, D.C., step out from behind the curtain and make that announcement to the press. TV, cameras rolling, and the newspapers, they've all got laptops sitting there, and they want to demand that the press come, or the president or his press secretary come out for these, these meetings where they can harass these people. And Donald Trump says, these people are incompetent. They're a whole bunch of liars, which is true. I mean, throughout the campaign, they lied. All the big news outlets, CBS, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, and Fox once in a while, they'd, they'd stub their toe. Fox is pretty reliable, in my opinion, but you know, they say they're fair and balanced. Boy, they got some real left-wingers on there. <laughs> and they, 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 they get them wound up, and they just go on a left-wing rant and then somebody punctures their balloon. And then they resort to name-calling. It's all predictable because the last refuge of a progressive is name-calling. And they'll call your names. It's what they do. And I don't know how they teach journalism students in college today. I mean, they've got so many different college courses that have become irrelevant in today's society. But they've got people down there at the university that are tenured, and they have to be paid for the rest of their life to teach anthropology, for example. You don't see many ads for anthropologists in the newspaper. You don't see many ads for historians. We graduate 60,000 history majors in our nation each year, and there are jobs for fewer than 600 historians. The other 99% are going to have to find a job doing something that they're not trained for. And they've got a huge college bill, tuition bill to pay, student loan, with no means to do it. And there's a huge bubble out there. Maybe some of these people may never pay their tuition. It's irresponsible for a government agency, such as the University of Maine or any other university, University of Connecticut, to teach a student a curriculum that results in a non-saleable skill set. They can't find a job doing what they were trained for. I've never seen an ad for somebody to be an art appreciator. They teach college courses and majors in art appreciation. Well, that's entertainment. 
And if a family can afford to send Susie to college for four years, majoring in art entertainment or art appreciation, then maybe she'll find a rich husband while she's down there. Maybe that's their motivation. Or maybe Junior, who, who can't make the varsity squad, he's not on a college scholarship, but he, he plays sports. And he's a good athlete. And maybe he's going to uh, become employed in, as a coach somewhere or a personal trainer in some gym, you know. But do you need to go to college for four years for that? I'm going to have to start asking this question because as with everything else in life in this world, you need to get your bang for the buck. To borrow a phrase from Robert McNamara. And we're building military weapons and military aircraft that are not going to be useful simply to keep military aircraft plants operating in come Congressman's district. And we had an Apache come apart yesterday down in Galveston, Texas. And the Apache took off. He's going on a routine flight. And he slung a blade. The blade came off the helicopter. Well, what keeps the helicopter in the air is an enormous amount of of forces. And when that blade flew off, the opposite blade flew off, and the entire rotor head was ripped right off the helicopter. The helicopter flipped over and crashed upside down in Galveston Bay, but the parts are on dry land because it happened about a half mile in from the from the water's edge. And uh, the departure of a rotor head off a helicopter is a violent event, and it's entirely possible both of them are unconscious before they ever hit the water. But it's, well, the forces involved are huge. Take that from an experienced helicopter pilot, B. Okay. 10 o'clock, straight up. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, The Conscious of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio. Just look it up on the Internet. You'll find it. More than 200 shows. If you ever get really bored, you can listen to all of them. So, got New Year's Eve is tomorrow. I want to wish everybody a happy New Year. Be safe. And I didn't mention the ladies that got in a snarl here the other day on Soulville's. But when you go, tell people where you're going. Bring something along to build a fire should that be necessary. Spare gas, first aid kit, a way to boil water, make a hot hot meal. Be prepared when you go out there. You can go a long way out in the woods on a snowmobile and if something happens, will you be able to deal with it? We lose people this way. So be careful. God bless. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 